Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm stuffed. Stuffed with good turkey and delicious sides. Stuffed with family love at a wonderful gathering in North Carolina and stuff with aviation news. Scott McCartney. For me, Ben, it's all about the cranberry. I make it, I love it, I gorge on it, and I can't understand why my family and friends don't share my cran passion. There are only two kinds of Thanksgivings, Ben, the ones with homemade cranberry and the ones with canned cranberry. That ridiculous processed jelly shaped in the can with ribs. I hate canned cranberry more than I hate holiday airline cancellations, Ben. And I'm happy to report that there was no canned cranberry at my Thanksgiving and few holiday cancellations, at least before Thanksgiving. Well, Scott, at our event, we had canned cranberry, but also a fresh cranberry relish, and everyone ate the fresh, and no one ate the canned. Yay! (laughs) Well, it it seems to have been a solid performance by airlines through the holiday period, so far at least. No major issues before Thanksgiving, even though there was a storm in the east. As we record this, the return home is still taking place, so the verdict's out. But so far, it's looking pretty good. And that's a relief for the industry, isn't it, Ben? There's been a lot of pressure to perform at peak seasons since the major problems we saw at Christmas last year and early in the summer with major problems in the New York area. Thanksgiving travel was expected to reach a record 30 million air passengers in the U.S., up about 9% from last year's 27.5 million. That's a lot of people to move. And so congratulations to all the hard work by airline employees and planners. Let's hope this repeats at Christmas. And congratulations, too, to the Federal Aviation Administration. It's not like they had extra air traffic controllers to call upon, but they got the job done, it seems, at least so far, with the constraints that we have talked about quite a bit. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said before the holiday that military airspace off the East Coast and over the Gulf of Mexico would be open to commercial flights. That seems standard every year. Military pilots go home for Thanksgiving, too. And Buttigieg said airline flights would be prioritized over private jets. I'm more curious to hear about that. I wonder if it can really make a difference. And if so, why isn't that standard? The business aviation lobby would go crazy 
but airspace is a public resource, and why shouldn't it be used first for the highest number of people? I think that's right, Scott. It reminds me that I've always thought that airports charge wrong, too, because many airports charge based on the size of the plane, with bigger planes costing more. But if you bring in more people, you're more efficiently using the space. More people are buying coffee and donuts. So I think you should charge the big planes less and the little planes more. Well, good luck with that one, Ben. That's a really interesting theory. Um, um, we'll, we'll all be taking on the uh, National Business uh, Aircraft Association. Well, Ben, there are several items of quirky news and one important age-old policy question fundamental to airlines that we should talk about this week in detail. First, in the you-can't-make-this-up category, the FlightAware Weekly Aviation News Report spotted a story that a China Eastern flight had a business class menu offering an appetizer of, quote, imported dog food, quote, and okra. This hit newspapers after a passenger named Christopher Wu posted a picture of the menu on social media. I've had some meals in the air that could best be described as mystery meat. And while you can always <clears throat> kibble with the accuracy of food descriptions on pretentious menus, I've never seen such honesty in a premium cabin printed menu. It seems, of course, that the problem was a bad translation. Second in that same category, French air traffic controllers went on strike for a day last week to protest a new law that um, restricts air traffic controller strikes. The strike affected a handful of airports, but apparently not the major international airport in Paris, Charles de Gaulle. The French parliament imposed a new requirement that air traffic controllers give 48 hours notice of strikes so that airports and passengers have at least a little warning. Previously, they could go out whenever they wanted, and they did. In the 12-year period ending 2016, there were 254 days of air traffic control strikes, according to France's Directorate General for Civil Aviation. That's more than eight months' worth of strikes. And this year may be the worst of all. Ryanair told its customers that there have already been 65 days with some kind of air traffic control strike in France this year. That's more than 13 times all of 2022. And the third chapter of this week's You Can't Make This Stuff Up, Saudi Arabia, a country often criticized for a lack of human rights, now has stronger airline passenger rights than the United States. Saudi Arabia introduced new passenger rights November 20th. According to Aviation Week, the new regulations encompass 30 new provisions that cover ticketing, boarding, in-flight services, and baggage handling, as well as provisions for passengers with special needs, including those with reduced mobility. No surprise that IATA Director General Willie Walsh spoke out against the measures, saying the best intentions often backfire and it will be costly to airlines for delays and cancellations that arguably are not their fault. Several Middle Eastern countries are considering similar regulations, Walsh says, and he's cautioning against going down the same path as the European Union 
261 regulation. The Saudi rules strengthen and extend compensation provisions. Recompense in some cases will increase to 150% to 200% of the original ticket price, while compensation for lost baggage could be as much as $1,750 a bag. It's amazing that Saudi Arabia is leading with that, you know? But it's going to come from somewhere, and pressure is going to keep pushing in these areas. It just says that reliability is important, and every airline needs to up their game. In terms of the mystery me, I agree that it had to be a translation problem. But given that, there probably was some dog in that fight. Oh, well, I just want to know what got mistranslated into dog. That's right. I would have just taken the peanuts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> does make you wonder where the shrimp comes from. <laughs> All right, now that we've gone around the wacky world in airline news, let's talk about a very serious issue here at home. I almost want to say this is the fourth you-can't-make-this-up item of the week, but that's too dismissive. I think a lot of people in this country share the view that airline deregulation hasn't worked for travelers. I certainly made a career out of writing about air travel problems, or as I like to say, why bad things happen to good travelers. If you talk to people involved in aviation and really understand this difficult, crazy business, you can find the reasons behind the problems. And in my several decades of reporting, I never found the reason to be deregulation. But the latest example of unrealistic travel utopia was brought to our attention by a longtime aviation leader who was instrumental in opening up the skies to much greater and cheaper international travel. Our friend forwarded a story about a new book provocatively titled, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. The author, Ganesh Sitaraman, argues that deregulating the airline industry has led to higher costs, less choice, and more misery for the flying public. Sitaraman is a Vanderbilt law professor and a graduate of Harvard Law School. He's a policy expert, the director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. His book got him on CNBC three days before the Thanksgiving rush. He was also interviewed by the alumni magazine Harvard Law Today and asked about the first part of the title, Why Flying is Miserable. His answer, public policy. Here's the quote. Everything about what makes flying miserable today is a function of one big public policy choice, the choice to deregulate the airlines in 1978. Quote, Ben, you and I and our guests talk a lot about public policy choices and failures today that affect aviation, from Congress's failure to adequately fund and modernize the FAA to the government's inconsistent approach to airline consolidation. There's the failure to address meaningful passenger rights or protect passengers when airlines refuse to follow regulations that are in place that required refunding billions of dollars for canceled pandemic flights. There's also the failure to help the industry on carbon dioxide emissions while other industries get help transitioning to cleaner technologies. 
You and I might even add in the Railway Labor Act's inability to quickly and efficiently drive new contracts for labor and management. One thing that just doesn't seem problematic 45 years later, however, is airline deregulation itself. Sitaraman blames competition for his list of ills, smaller seats, additional fees for luggage, or for picking your seat, delays, cancellations, having to connect through Atlanta or Dallas. I'd point out, Ben, that seats are the same width as in 1978, so I think Sitaraman means skimpier legroom. That's certainly true. More people in the cabin makes flying less comfortable. It also makes flying a lot cheaper. Same for the efficiency of the hub-and-spoke system. When the system was regulated, you often had to stop in Birmingham or Tulsa or Albuquerque or all of them before you got to Los Angeles. Flying was a lot less efficient, and that means more costly. So, Ben, I know you're chomping at the bit to comment, but a few statistics I pulled first. According to the 1980 National Transportation Statistics Annual Report, which has the 1978 statistics, the average passenger paid 8.5 cents to fly one mile, and the average passenger fare was about $124 round trip. Adjusted for inflation, that yield would be 40 cents today. But the current yield, according to the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, is about half as much, 20 cents. That average fare in 1978 would be $585 today adjusted for inflation. There are a lot of problems comparing average fare. The data was collected and reported differently, and people fly a lot farther today. The 1978 data doesn't designate domestic trips, but there weren't all that many international trips at the time. The current data does stick to domestic trips. Average domestic fare in the second quarter was about 392, according to the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. That's about one-third cheaper than the 1978 price adjusted for inflation. Load factor, by the way, was 61.5% in 1978. Today, that runs north of 80%. Well, Scott, let me interrupt for a moment. The other thing he's not accounting for is when the industry was regulated, almost no one flew. Mm -hmm. It was the domain of the very rich. And today, almost anyone can fly. There's got to be some public benefit to that. Huge public benefit. I mean, not just as, as, as public policy allowing people to um, live where they want, um, to visit relatives in other parts of the country, to explore the world and educate themselves, and all of those, to go on vacation to places that they couldn't drive to, all of those benefits. It, it's also a huge part of our economy, right? The, the ability of business travelers to see clients all, all over the world. Um, an unbelievable public policy and economic benefit. Sitaraman, it's interesting, he, he acknowledges that prices have come down, but he says it's not the result of deregulation because prices were cheaper in the late 1970s than they were in the 1950s. So how could it be deregulation when prices were already coming down? Oh, oh, <laughs> Professor Ben, I know that one. <laughs> 
Prices came down in the 1960s and 70s with the advent of the jet age. Jets flew faster and cheaper than turboprops and carried more people. Since that huge step change, we've had new aircraft that were incrementally less expensive per seat mile, but not a revolutionary change. Deregulation allowed new competitors and new pricing and new service, and all that forced airlines to get cheaper. Those that couldn't died. Those that did survived. It was painful for airline people, hugely painful. But deregulation is the revolutionary change that led to lower prices. An interesting comparison, Ben. So we looked at flying today as one-third to one-half cheaper than it was in 1978. And that's remarkable. But has that happened in other industries? I looked for some comparisons, say like, "Mm, I don't know, Harvard Law School tuition. In 1978, Harvard Law School tuition was $4,000, according to the Harvard Crimson. That would be about $18,500 today, adjusted for inflation. This year, according to the Harvard website, law school tuition is $75,000, or four times as much as it was in 1978, even after adjusting for inflation. And by the way, that tuition includes a baggage fee. Oh, I mean a mandatory student health fee of $1,408. As you say, Ben, it really has democratized flying. It's opened up so much. In 1978, there were 279 million employments. Last year, there were 853 million in the United States. And we know this year will be a lot higher. Just look at what's happening with Thanksgiving travel. So the U.S. population has grown about 50% from 1978, and the flying population has grown more than 200%. So I just think this has been really good policy. Some public policies are good, and they do cost more. Airbags on cars, for example, that raises the price of the car, but it saves lots of lives. People think Social Security and Medicare, good public policy. This is a public policy that not only is good for people, but also has delivered the service at much lower prices. And if you're one of the 10% to 20% of travelers willing to pay more for space at a higher fare, there's plenty of premium options for you. You can get your 1978 legroom at a 1978 price. Just buy premium economy or first class or business class. But most people want cheap. Scott, this is amazing. Vanderbilt's a great school, but that professor has cherry-picked a couple things. And another thing he fails to recognize, or at least publish, is that airline deregulation wasn't a one-off thing. During the late 60s and 70s, lots of transport and logistics in the U.S. was deregulated, including trucking laws, railroads, telecommunications, electricity, and more. Airlines were part of a trend that was being followed. So is he going to argue that everything is better run by the federal government? 
I'm not going to say that deregulation was a 100% success because there have been challenges and problems. But taken as a group, the results under deregulation are much better for customers and the economy than when the industry was regulated. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think, too, we should remember that the industry wasn't wholly deregulated. There is still a Department of Transportation making regulations. There are a lot of regulations that govern airlines on not what they price tickets at, but how they sell tickets. There are a lot of regulations that apply to safety, as they should. And this is an industry that can't move an airplane without permission from a federal employee in the air traffic control system. Um, so the system, the, the airline world, still very much um, subject to lots of regulation. And, and that will continue. And I think a lot of the problems that people find with air travel can be fixed um, through the current regulatory environment or at least helped with the current regulatory environment. But it's hard to get things through Congress. It's hard to get things through um, an administration when administration changes every four years and it takes years to, to make any kind of regulation. But maybe we should focus on the fixes and, and not the whole problem. It's interesting, Sitaraman basically has three things he proposes as fixes um, for all this. He, he thinks airlines should be required to bank a giant rainy day fund so they don't need bailouts or bankruptcies in the future. Um, I think the problem with that to me is, uh, well, then, then you're, you're pushing ticket prices higher, right? If, if airlines have to set aside uh, for a rainy day fund or maybe the federal government sets up some kind of rainy day fund for airlines imposing an even higher tax on, on tickets. Um, that would reduce the number of people who fly. That would increase inflation because airfare is part of the consumer price index. Would lead to more highway deaths because more people would, would drive instead of fly. And it would trigger loud complaints of lousy public policy that drove up the cost of travel um, for a rainy day fund. Uh, another of his fixes is that uh, he notes many cities have lost airline service and he says that's, quote, not a healthy way to run an airline system. He thinks airlines should be required to serve Dubuque, Iowa and other small towns as a cost of being an airline because airlines get a lot of public privileges um, using airspace and public resources. Such service requirements will, guess what, drive up ticket prices, right? Besides that, I'd argue that many cities have have grown a ton of airline service. Um, so why look at just the ones that have lost? Um, look at the ones that have really expanded airline service and benefited from that. And basically, the system is putting service where people want it. And that's exactly the way to run an airline system. Bad public policy is requiring service that people don't use. That's why you rob banks. Yeah. It's where the money is. Right, right. And I think, too, this is an easy fix. If this is really a problem, just expand the essential air service program and offer subsidies to airlines to serve communities that aren't served. Use the carrot to fix that problem, not the stick. 
Sitaraman also complains about few choices in the airline marketplace, and this one's even more interesting. It's a frequent complaint you hear with so much consolidation taking place over the past 15 years. When the system was regulated and no airline could offer a flight without permission from the Civil Aeronautics Board, you had few choices. Today, you often do have choice, if you live in a city with lots of people, that is. And by the way, we have become a much more urban population than we were in 1978. The flights available may not be the choice you prefer, a connecting flight or a low-cost carrier may not be your thing. But a lot of airlines providing alternative choices, from Southwest to JetBlue to Spirit to Allegiant to Avello and Breeze now, wouldn't exist in the regulated world. Passengers would still be supporting high-cost Pan Am and TWA and others. You know, Scott, the first trip I ever took on an airline was in 1983, a couple of years after deregulation, but it was on TWA. I flew from D.C. to L.A. And check out this itinerary. I flew a DC-9 from DC to St. Louis, connected to an L-1011 that flew St. Louis to Tulsa, Tulsa to Oklahoma City, and <laughs> Oklahoma City to L.A., Imagine the cost of that L-1011 doing that. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. I don't, I can't see how the system could ever support that if you if you had the volume of travel now and you had all those ridiculous flights. Air traffic control staffing would have. <laughs> I just can't imagine L-1011s um, getting flying between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Uh, how, how wasteful it would all be. It was amazing. Even as a college student, I was thinking, this can't make sense. Yeah, yeah, no. So another fix, the third fix Sitaraman wants, is that he'd force what he calls fair and transparent prices. And Ben, I know you're going to love this. I'm not sure what a fair fare is, should everyone pay the same price to cover the costs of the flight? On CNBC, he suggested more uniformity in prices. Same price on Tuesday as Wednesday. Having fewer prices means higher prices for price-sensitive travelers, so they wouldn't travel as much. Business travelers who can afford more would benefit from paying an average price instead of a high price. Harvard Law Today asked the obvious. If the system is so bad, why haven't people demanded change? Sitaraman blames the airline lobby for outmuscling the unorganized traveling public, and he blames ideology that for 40 years has labeled deregulation good and regulation bad. Now, he notes, there's a lot of rethinking of economic policy, globalization, privatization, and wealth. But Joe Kernan on CNBC maybe summed it up best by saying, the alternative is frickin' Amtrak. That's so funny. And Joe Kernan's right. I don't always agree with him, but I do on this. It'd be fun to have him, Citroën, and I mean, on the show and see if he'd try to defend this 
to a bunch of people who probably wouldn't have even had careers in this business if deregulation hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We will try and do that. I just wanted to add one more angle, Ben. I think when things don't go right, we always think there's a better way, or it didn't happen before, or things used to be better. That's certainly true in air travel, but it's wrong if you really look at the facts. In 2010, I wrote a story for the Wall Street Journal comparing the current state then of travel to the golden age, which is generally regarded or at least remembered as the 1950s. Back in 2010, some in Congress were pushing re-regulation, just like now, I guess. People always think travel could be better, and no doubt it could. At that time, the DOT was writing new rules for passenger protection, but they never amounted to much. Anyway, why can't we go back to the glory days of white glove treatment, plenty of legroom, and nary a security hassle or flight delay? Because it wasn't so golden even then. Piston-driven airplanes were noisy and bumpy since they couldn't get over storms and turbulence. Engine failures were a lot more common. So were crashes. That's an often overlooked but incredibly important achievement of the last 45 years. And tickets were so pricey that flying, as we've said, was only available to the elite. A round-trip ticket between New York and Los Angeles in 1958 was $208, according to Airlines for America. That would cost more than $2,200 today. And Scott, it's not just price. When I first got to Spirit, my predecessor left a poster on the wall that was an early 1970s poster from Eastern Airlines with a DCA over the skyline of Miami, and it said, New York to Miami, just 15 hours. <laughs> I thought you were going to say just $49, and that was uh, that was your marker. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, because the 60s and 70s were another alleged golden age, right? And there you go with 15 hours uh, to New York. Airlines couldn't compete on price or routes, so they competed on amenities, so sumptuous meals and stewardesses, as they were called then, with hot pants and provocative ads like Fly Me. Boeing 747s, which started service in 1969, had piano bars on the top level. But there were problems those days, too, right? Congo lines of jets crowded airports in New York, Washington, Chicago, that led to long delays and calls to modernize the nation's air traffic control system. Sound familiar? In 1969, the government implemented temporary restriction of takeoff and landing slots at the most overcrowded airports. And that temporary fix is still in place today. Hijackings were fairly common. Unfortunately, crashes were a lot more common, too. From 1964 to 1973, there was an average seven fatal accidents a year on U.S. airlines. The last fatal crash for a U.S. airline was 2009, 14 years ago. And there are a whole lot more flights now than there were in the 1960s and 70s. It really is remarkable. I don't think there ever was a golden age of fair travel. 
And I don't think there ever will be. We will always think it used to be better. The bottom line is it's really hard to move people and bad things happen. Sure, it can be better, no question. But getting where you want to go safely and cheaply may be the best we can do. That's right, Scott. And competition drives that innovation. There's no question that the industry has benefited from the pressure of what others might do to your business. Absolutely. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Duhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offer services and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And I'll point out, those smart people at Duhop wouldn't have a business in a regulated world. Uh-huh. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, who would still have a business. Yeah. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at Pratt Whitney. Ben, Jason from Chicago has a question this week that I think is appropriate for our deregulation or post-deregulation discussion. He's seen stories questioning whether the Southwest model is broken. Jason says, I would love to hear your thoughts on this subject. Southwest has consistently evolved over the last decade, but usually in smaller, more manageable baby steps. It's been blessed during the Herb era, to manage itself in good times as if they were bad times so it could survive when things are actually bad. But now everyone seems to be questioning if the model is actually broken and needs a big overhaul to become either the new TV-less JetBlue hybrid LCC or a Spirit ULCC without the big front seat. A lot of people say they need assigned seats too. Thanks for taking the question and I really love the show. Hopefully you can ask Andrew Watterson or Bob Jordan to come on for a discussion. And Jason, we have been talking to Southwest and we hope to have Andrew on soon. What do you think, Ben? Is the Southwest model broken? I don't think it's broken, but it's not the same Southwest that existed in the 80s either. That company has continued to evolve 
and they will keep evolving. The model's not broken, but might they need some changes? For sure, just like they talked about in their operation from last summer. I don't think they need to charge for seat assignments or bags, but they could. I don't think they need to change who and what they are, but can they get smarter and evolve their business? Of course they can. They're not broken today, but they're 50 years old. And all of us at 50 need more change than when we're in our teenage years. <laughs> we, we certainly do, and, and they certainly do. <laughs> and it, it'll be interesting uh, to see how they do evolve. And we can also point out that in a regulated world, no evolution would be necessary. You could just keep doing the same thing and raising the price. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.